express. So I was reading a story the other day about a family who was on vacation. You know, I always thought vacations were a lot of fun until I had three kids. And, you know, six, four, and, you know, just it changes the dynamic completely of vacation. But anyway, this that's not in part of the notes, but I do that a lot. Um, so this dad's driving down the road. He's in a, you know, let's call it a minivan, going down the road. And they, <clears throat> they get to this place where it says, road closed, do not enter. So I don't know if you've been with somebody like me, but usually you just, it's more of a suggestion than a... You know, then a, then a command, thanks, Pat, then a, then a command. And so, you know, he doesn't waste any time. He thinks about it for a second. Of course, his wife is next to him. Like, what are you doing? Let's go back. He's like, you know, it's a half hour back the other direction to, the, to take the other route. Let's just go. So they head down. He goes around the sign, keeps going. And, you know, the wife obviously wasn't very fond of the idea, probably chastising him, saying, you know, this isn't safe. We don't know what's down there. So, you know, 10 minutes in, they haven't hit anything. Just uh, it's a normal road. I don't know what that sign was for. Maybe it was old. Everybody's excited. The dad's kind of gloating in his newfound discernment of going around road close signs. And then about 15 minutes in, they get to the end and they realize, you know, it looks like the road kind of dips off and they get a little closer. And they realize the bridge is there and the bridge is out. So, you know, they're committed 15 minutes in. Obviously, the dad's not that dumb. So he's going to They turn back around. They head back the other way. And he's, you know, kind of getting it from everybody in the car. And they get back and there's a sign as they're coming back, that same sign that said, road closed, do not enter, on the other side said, welcome back, stupid. Okay? <laughs> and for clarity, that was not intended for those of you who've been out the last couple of weeks, all right? That's, um, but here's, here's why I say that. Um, you know, I, I think it's a great picture of life because so often I try to do it my own way. And I have signs from God, whether it's the word, whether it's prayer, whether it's discernment from his spirit. And he says, you need to go this direction. I'm like, I got this. Let me just go around the sign. The sign says, this is danger. We all know, we've all been there, right? This is danger. I, I got this, all right? You go around it and you get about 10 minutes down the road and you, you know, you're kind of gloating. See God, this is all good. And then you realize, okay, that's not what I thought it was going to be, the road actually is gone and I need to turn around and come back. Now, the, the, the beauty of that, the beauty of it when life operates like that, which we do often, unfortunately, we take the reins and say, this is what we're going to do for a while. The beauty is when we come back to God, he's not holding a sign that says, welcome back, stupid, <laughs> right? He is sitting there like the prodigal son, with arms open, saying, I'm glad you're back. Welcome back. Let's, let's, I don't even care what you did. I don't care how far down the road you got. You're repenting, you're turning, you're back. Let's do this, right? That, that is the picture of a loving father. We have been walking through First and Second Samuel since I think the second week of January. We preached verse by verse, book by book, and we've made our way through all of 1 Samuel, most of 2 Samuel. We have four chapters left. So we have seen the progression of the Israelites, right? We have seen, you know, from the Garden of Eden to the fall to Genesis 12, where God looks at Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. That's where you get the nation of Israel from. 
Jacob, also known as Israel, has 12 sons. That's where you get the 12 tribes of Israel, right? They go during a famine, they go over to Egypt, and they grow into this large nation. And the Bible says there was a Pharaoh rose who did not know Joseph, like didn't know who these Israelites were, so they get taken into captivity. 400 or so years, they're in captivity. And then we get the book of Exodus where they come out, they go into the promised land finally after some bad decisions, you know, after going down the road a ways and realizing they made the wrong road, they came back 40 years of wandering in the desert. They make it to the promised land. They get into the promised land and they're like, you know what, God, God puts judges over them, right? You get guys like Samson, military commanders, judges, and they're like, we don't like these judges. They're crazy, most of them. They come in at the last minute. They just kind of, you know, rescue us. We don't have a king. We don't have a military. We don't have anybody we can look to, God. We don't really like this theocracy. We want a king. We want a, a, a kingdom like we look around and see everybody else has. So God says, all right, I'm going to give you kings. And that's really what we have been studying in First and Second Samuel, is the, the initiation of kings in Israel. That first king is King Saul. And I don't know if you've ever read Samuel and wondered why God gave them Saul. Because you read them and you're like, okay, if God's going to give him a king, why Saul? Like he does all these weird things, bad things. He's like seeing a medium. He's just all these weird things happen in the life of Saul. But Saul was a king after the people's heart. He was tall. He was handsome. He was strong. Like that's really what they desired when they asked for a king. They didn't want somebody who was going to talk to God, somebody who was going to lead them like God led them. What they really wanted was somebody who was just going to give them what they wanted. Be a protector, be strong, be tall. And that's why God gave them Saul. So Saul dies somewhere in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and then we get David. And David is a God or a king after God's own heart. So they're very different. So you have seen this contrast between Saul and David throughout the whole book. Their ins and outs, their ebbs and flows. One of them, King David, continually coming back to the Lord. He gets down the road, makes stupid decisions, and says, all right, Lord, this is not where I'm supposed to be. The bridge is out. <laughs> Let's turn around and go back. You get Psalm 51. He's in an affair with Bathsheba. All of a sudden, he says, he cries out to the Lord after he's confronted, and you see Psalm 51. It's a, it's a prayer of repentance. David realizes what he has done. But then you look at Saul, and we see a very stark contrast between David and Saul. Saul does things he shouldn't do. Saul starts going down the road, and then Saul just takes a new fork in the road. He doesn't really go back. He doesn't come back to the Lord. You don't see that with Saul. And so you're, you, we have had a front row seat to these ebbs and flows, and we're, we're actually coming down the home stretch. We have four chapters left, all right? Four chapters left to this entire book, and these last four chapters are very unique. It's almost like it's an, it's an epilogue. It's, they're not in chronological order. The stories are very different. The stories are very weird, right? Some of the stories we see are just like, okay, why is that even in there? But obviously God in his wisdom wanted it there. So we are, we're coming to chapter 21, which is one of those, one of these stories. Okay. And today we're going to walk through two of them. We're just going to cover chapter 21. We're going to spend most of our time on the first story. Then we're going to hit the second story pretty quick. So with that as some background, open to second Samuel chapter 21 and we'll jump in. Verse one, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. 
So in this very first story, we, the first verse we read, there's a famine. Okay, now, I don't know about you, but I think it's kind of hard for us to understand a famine. Like what, what the magnitude of a famine was. Because in our society, even if the Midwest gets a drought, we just get our corn from somewhere else. Right? If, if the cherries go out in Michigan, we get them from somewhere else. Like we have imports, we have exports, we have all these different ways of getting food. I don't know that you've ever walked into a grocery store in the United States and something was missing because of a drought. Maybe you have, I don't know. But I, I have never done that. I've never walked into a grocery store where there has been, we don't call them famines anymore, but where you've come into, there's been a famine in the land. But as the chapter opens, Israel finds himself in a three-year famine. It doesn't just say three years. It says year after year. The author wants you to understand that this is long. This is drawn out year after year. There's death, there's starvation, there's people dying, there's animals dying. People are moving to other countries. And we know from other places in scripture, when a famine is present, God is generally trying to get his people's attention. Like we see that in Deuteronomy. We see it in a couple places where God has literally said, if there is a famine, this is why you have a famine. I'm trying to get your attention. If they were straying or if they were drifting or if they were walking in sin, he would send a famine to bring them back. You think God still does that? You're not walking with him. You're not walking in his ways. You're not praying. You're kind of doing your own thing. You're going down the path that you shouldn't listen. You've passed the sign that says road closed, right? You're, you're going down the wrong direction. Do you think God does things to grab your attention? Absolutely. I mean, there, it may not be a, a drought, but there are things that will happen in your life if you're walking the wrong direction where God's like, this is not what we do. They will do things to get your attention. And so that's what's happening for them. He's just trying to wake them up. So for the Israelites, you know, one bad year could probably mean anything. You know, if you look at the water tables here, the, 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 the rainfalls here, some years we get more rainfall than other years. And we always speculate and talk about, oh, it's in the driest October, you know, but one bad year, you know, maybe, maybe something's up. The second bad year of famine, no, no rain, bad, you know, nothing there, no, nothing growing. All right, I'm probably reaching out to the Lord. Maybe I'm thinking I'm a little holier than I really am, but I'm like, all right, Lord, if this is what could happen, but year three, they all realize, okay, something's up. We have done something. It's year three. So that's what David does. Verse one, and David sought the face of the Lord. I don't know why he didn't do it sooner, but again, hindsight's twenty twenty. But either way, he cries out to the Lord. And this is what the Lord says. There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. The famine is in place for three years because there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So if I'm David, okay, the reason that people are starving and people are dying is because King Saul, who's not even alive at this point, killed some people, the Gibeonites, years ago during his reign. Like, is that, is that what's happening here? Are we in a famine because King Saul killed somebody however many years ago? And that's, that's why. And obviously there's, there's ramifications for killing anybody. I mean, nowadays there are, back then there were. You couldn't just do that, all right? There's ramifications of that. But here's the thing, killing a Gibeonite, even though this was probably the first time most of you even heard that word, killing a Gibeonite was a big deal. And everybody in Israel knew that. 
They all knew it was a big deal because they had this covenant with Israel that dates back 400 years. So for the last 400 years, nobody touched the Gibeonites. You didn't mess with them. You left them alone. It basically, they said they would let them live. And it was a very interesting way on how it all came about. It was right when the Israelites came into the promised land. So they come into this land. It's called the land of Canaan. Is what it was called before. They referred to it as the promised land. So they came into the promised land and their initial challenge was to annihilate the land. God said, wipe the land out. This is your land. It was promised to Abraham. It was promised to Isaac. It was promised to Jacob. You're in the land now cleared of all the people. So then these people come along and the Israelites thought that they were nomads. They literally came in and they had ripped clothes. They had tattered shoes. They had their wine skins for their drinks were all, they had kind of made them look very worn. And so it looked like they were just passing through. So they, they approached the Israelites again, when they first came in the land and they said, Hey, can you spare us? Like we, we, we heard you're just annihilating everybody. We don't even live here. We're just passing through. Well, they did live there and they tricked the Israelites. The Israelites didn't seek the Lord. Joshua didn't seek the Lord. They just made a covenant with them. And that's what you read about in Joshua nine fourteen. It says, so the men talk about the Israelites took their provisions the wine, the food. So it's, you know, if you ever want to know a way to try to trick people, food, you know, drink, those kind of things are usually probably a good place to start. That's exactly what they did. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Joshua and his men took it. They didn't say, Lord, what do we do here? They just took it. In verse 15, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So they said, all right, we'll let you live. Well, then they find out that they actually live in the land and the deal was done. So they, they had this agreement with these people for all time that they would live in the land. And the way they made these arrangements, these oaths, these covenants back then, sounds really gross, but they would literally cut an animal in half, sometimes multiple animals. They would lay the animal open and they would all walk through the two halves. And the, the understanding was if you break this covenant, that's what's going to happen to you. That was why they did it. This, that's how important there would be. Blood would need to be shed. There would be a price to pay. So at some point during King Saul's reign, this isn't even in scripture. We don't know when, but obviously God just addressed it with David. So we know what happened. But at some point during his reign, he decided to put a number of the Gibeonites to death. Just kill them. And while clearly the ramifications of what he did weren't immediate because he's gone. Obviously he didn't bear any of that responsibility for what he did. The Lord decided it was time to deal with Saul's sin. And now the Lord's going to deal with Saul's sin. So the, the king, come on, David, verse two, called the Gibeonites, spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnants of the Amorites although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. So you're just getting a little more color on what I just said. Saul had sought to strike them down. Now listen to this. Here's why Saul killed them. Saul's not even alive, but here's why it says he killed them. Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know how it went down, but it, obviously he had zeal for his own people. These people are living in my land and I'm over it. 
We don't know what he did. It just says he killed a, killed a whole bunch of them because he had zeal for his own people. You know, it's like a, like a nationalistic fit of rage for a better way to say it. I mean, that's, that's essentially what happened. He massacred innocent people who lived among the Israelites. Have you ever felt nationalistic zeal? Like zeal for your country? Because it's, it's a very interesting statement about King Saul. If you just kind of highlight on that, because I'm reading this and I'm studying this. I'm like, why did he do this? Well, he did it in a fit of zeal for his own people. And there are people in his country that aren't, don't have to do with him. All right. And so I think we would all agree. Let me say it this way. I think we would all agree. It's a good thing to love your country. Would you agree with that? It's a good thing to love your country. Like America is one of, and obviously I'm a little biased. It's one of the best places to live on the entire planet. Like, I, again, I'm a little biased. Um, it's a good thing to have zeal for your country. It's a good thing to have zeal for your fellow Americans. What about your church? Is it a good thing to have zeal for the body of Christ? Is it a good thing to have zeal for the people who are in the global body of Christ? How about a desire to help people when they're hurting, to help people when they're, when they're distressed or displaced? Do you, let me ask you this. Do you have a desire to see God move in other people's lives? Think about it. Do you have a true desire to see God work in other people's lives? What if those people aren't citizens of the United States? Do you have a desire to see people in other countries come to know Christ and grow and be nurtured in their faith? You know, we've been talking over the past few months that Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. Iran, the fastest growing church in the world. You know, there are Christians right now in Iran praying that God would allow them to leave their country and find safe passage in America. Praying fervently, begging God to move on their behalf so they no longer have to worship in secret. They can worship with people like us, other believers in public and, you know, in freedom. They are fervently praying that God would move on their behalf. And let me ask you a question. This is kind of the point. What if God answered their prayers by changing some of our immigration laws? And please don't think it's a political statement. I'm, I'm not political. All right, this has nothing to do with politics. This is people. And sometimes we kind of don't know how to separate the two. This is, this is people. There are believers coming to Christ all over the world. And God, believe it or not, is working on their behalf to answer their prayers. Now, I don't always like how he answers their prayers, but most of the time, the way God works is not the way I think he's going to work or how he should work. Like if this is the end game and this is what I'm praying for, I would just like a straight line. All right, Lord, I'm here. I'm praying for that. Let's just do it nice and easy. Most of the time, if I'm here and I'm praying for that, I'm walking around the room and eventually God's going to answer that prayer, but it's not in the way I wanted him to answer it. Because he, he has his own timetable, clearly. Saul's gone. He has his own way of working. What about refugees at the border? People who have traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to make it to the U.S. Because they heard the U.S. is the land of the free and the home of the brave. It's a Christian nation. And they want into this country. 
And I realize there's a tons of people who wanted this country for all the wrong reasons. And that's why smarter people are trying to deal with this than me, right? That's why this is not for me to deal with. It's not political. I'm just saying sometimes, if you're not careful, nationalistic pride can lead you to do things like Saul that you never intended to do. It can lead you to say things that you never thought you would say. It lead you to stands that you would take that if you step back and think about it, I don't know how I'd ever make that stand. These are people. God, believe it or not, God is not an American God. He loves the world. He is moving on behalf of the world. These Gibeonites, they're not even his people. They're not even Israelites. And he sent famine to the Israelites on behalf of the Gibeonites. Like, that's really hard for me to matter. And as a pastor, that, that's why this sort of stuff is, I don't know the answers. But I know there are people praying and God is moving and God is doing things. And sometimes I just look at things black and white and God says, there's something bigger going on here. I remember Silby, we do the Friends of Internationals thing. Some of you have heard the name Silby before. Silby came to the U.S. from India, came in, went to USF. He was with Friends of Internationals, the ministry that we're serving dinner for tonight. He came over, he met Mark Lidecker at the time who ran Friends of Internationals, and he got saved. Got his engineering degree, started working in America, and then one, at one point said, I got to go back to India. And I got to go back to India and minister to my people. Came to the U.S., he was allowed in the U.S., he came in, he did his thing, he's out, he's a missionary, and I, I talked to him probably monthly, and he is like in the, the threat of everything. It's in northern India where all kinds of nonsense is happening right now, but he is sharing the word because he heard about it at USF in Tampa. Like God works in ways that I don't, I don't always think, and I just, I want us to see, you know, what Saul did, and just be careful that we're not being like, like our nationalistic pride. Again, it's great to be prideful of your country. My grandfather fought in, fought in wars, and I'm, I, I can't be more thankful. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else, but God is moving. God is working. God is having us rub shoulders with people that we've never rubbed shoulders with before, and maybe there's a reason. Maybe he wants us to love people and minister to people and lead them to him. And so as a pastor, when I read that, those are just the things I, I wrestle with and struggle with. I'm just like, all right, Lord, what are you doing and how can we get involved? So they're in a famine, three years of famine, verse three. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make, and listen to this word, how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? So David goes to Gibeon. God said, here's why this is happening. So God goes over to the, or God, David goes over to the Gibeonites. He said, all right, Saul wronged you. What can we do to make this right? What can I do to make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And that, that word atonement comes up in the New Testament a lot. It's a word that means to make right, to cover the shame, to you know, cover the wrongdoing. That's essentially something's not right between us. What can I do to make it right? What price needs to be paid? Verse four, the Gibeonite said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I should do for you? Verse five, they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, talking about Saul, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that they may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul. The chosen of the Lord and the king said, I will give them. So 
David goes, said, what needs to happen? And they said, we want seven of his sons or grandsons, offspring. Seven men are going to pay the price. Now, we don't know how many Gibeonites Paul kill, or, um, Saul killed. It's really not important. But seven is a very, I mean, it's a, it's a very scriptural, Old Testament scriptural number. It's the number of completion. The world was created in seven days. In Revelation, there's seven letters that go to the seven churches, and there's seven great Jewish feasts. And so it's possible that the Gibeonites who have been living amongst the Israelites for so long kind of picked up on that, and they said, we want seven. Seven of those men are going to hang. So David says, all right, it makes sense. Let's do it. Verse seven, but the king spared Meshibotheth. I'm going to butcher a lot of names, by the way. I may even skip some of them. Um, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was made between them. And I think that's very interesting. So on the one hand, you have Saul who broke the oath. And the writer says very clearly, David is keeping his oath. He made an oath with Jonathan when Jonathan died that he would take care of Jonathan's son. So it's, again, it's that contrast the writer's showing you one is doing, following the Lord, one is not. And so you're you're already seeing a little picture of this. Verse eight, the king took the two sons of Rizba. So he's getting the seven sons. He took the two sons of Rizba, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Berezeel, And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. So on the one hand, you have have David. He's he's obeying what the Lord is asking him to do. And it's, it's, I mean, I can't even fathom it, right? I mean, the, he's choosing, picking and choosing who's going to go. He's sparing one, not sparing the other. I mean, it's hard. I wonder if Saul, put yourself in Saul's shoes. I wonder if Saul had any idea so many years before when he killed them. He knew the ramifications. Every single Israelite knew the ramifications. These people lived among you. You knew if you did something, done. He didn't care. He did it anyway. And I wonder if he knew all those years earlier, the consequences it would bring, not only on his own family, not only on the Gibeonites, but also on the entire nation of Israel. Three years of famine, children starving, seven men hanging for his sin. Sin has collateral damage. It always has. It always will. There's always consequences of sin. And even Saul's own daughter, Merib, and his concubine, Rizpah, are innocent victims who lost what I would call innocent sons. The grandsons of Saul, verse 10. Now listen to this. Listen to, listen to, the, listen to the mother here. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth. So they, they all hang for the sins. They all hang for the sins of Saul. Then one of the mothers, Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest, which probably would have been around April, until rain fell upon them from the heavens. She did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them or the beasts of the fields by night. Their bodies probably would have been there for four to five months. They weren't going to bury them because they, they were almost desecrated. Like they just, they were there as an example of what had happened. Like normally the Jews would take people down immediately. I mean, they wanted Jesus pulled off that cross so soon because they, like that was tradition. You know, they didn't want any amount of time to pass. 
They didn't preserve the bodies like maybe the Egyptians did. So they didn't want any time to pass. But those bodies were left there. And one of the mothers of two of the sons says, stayed out there for four to five months fighting off the vultures, fighting off the wild animals that were trying to come and consume these bodies. She wouldn't have been just in some little tent either. She literally would have been, and I'm not trying to pull you down, and I just want you to picture the, the pain of a mother, the pain of a parent. Like, I mean, I'm sure all the people in Israel could hear her cries, could hear her yelling at these animals. I mean, you saw David was killing wild animals. So these wild animals existed in this area, right? Because David as a shepherd boy was killing them. So you know they're there. So these wild animals are coming and trying to get these bodies. And she's like, you will not desecrate. I know these guys, kids are gone, but you are not going to desecrate these bodies. People in Israel hearing what's happening, hearing this. I mean, I just can't even... Like, I don't want that to be lost in there for a reason. The writer put that in there because the writer wants you to feel the weight of what is happening. The weight of, I mean, the love of a parent for her, for her son. Sons that, by the way, were innocent. Dying for a, a, the sins they never committed to atone for someone else. Like, that, that's... That's the magnitude of what just happened. And the writer includes her. Most of the time, you just kind of skim over these things. The writer, through the inspiration of the Lord, obviously wanted her to be memorialized for all time. The writer wanted you to see the love of that parent for a child. Wanted you to understand. I mean, she is honored for all time in scripture. I mean, it's not honored in the way most of us want to be honored, but she was fighting for her kids even after death. All right, and God honors that. And then David honors it as well. So David hears about Rizpah, hears about what she's doing. It says the concubine, Rizpah, the concubine of Saul had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son, Jonathan, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshin, where the Philistines had hanged on the day the Philistines killed Saul and Gilboa. And they brought them up from there, the bones of all of them, and they buried him in the tomb of Kish, his father. So Saul is buried in the tomb of his father and, he's, and David's like, you know what? I mean, David at this point had already probably lost five sons himself. He knew what Rizpah was going through. I mean, he lost Absalom. He lost, you know, the one that Absalom killed. He lost a baby. Most scholars think five kids at this point, five sons. David understood the pain that Rizpah was going through. And David said, you know what? I'm going to honor you for being here. So he goes and gets the bones of Saul, which are somewhere else. Jonathan, which are somewhere else, goes and gets the bones of all of these seven that just had been, that hanged and they got all of them. He takes them and he puts them in a proper burial place. And then verse 14 says, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. That's how, the, that's how that first story wraps up. Heartwarming, right? But, but here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing we see about God. Every story is in scripture for a reason. And here's what we see about God. He is true to his word. He rights the wrongs, delivers those who have been taken advantage of. If you read through scripture, you better not mess with widows. You better not mess with orphans. You better not mess with sojourners, people who are passing through, people who have no home, people who are down and out. I mean, people who have been taken advantage of. The Lord is always responding in those areas. And the Lord also keeps his promise. 
In this case, it's probably a promise most people didn't want him to keep. The oath was broken and he did something about it. And then don't miss the last phrase at the end. After that, God responded to the plea for the land. After that, God responded to the plea for the land. Basically, God then listens to their prayers. And here's the, here's the thing that kind of when I'm first reading this, I'm like trying to wrap my mind around because it wasn't if from the time Saul killed the Gibeonites that God didn't listen to any prayers. But when, when God in his timing wants to deal with sin, he's gonna deal with sin. Saul probably thought for his entire life, I got away with this. I killed these people. And I, I, don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what this oath was about, but I got away with this. And God, in his timing, deals with sin. And the same is true for you and me. There's been many times in my life where I'm like, got away with that. God's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> like, God will deal with sin. I don't understand what his timing is. I don't understand when he decides to do things. His ways are higher than my ways. He is infinitely more wise than I am. And when he wants to deal with sin, he's going to deal with sin. And there came a time where he's like, we're going to deal with this sin. And until that point, the famine, they're praying probably for rain. They're praying for food. They're praying for all this stuff. The famine is in. And until that is dealt with, famine's going to stick around. After that, God responded. After the sin of Saul had been atoned for, blood had been shed, God listens to the pleas for the land. And I think it's a very important aspect of the verse. You know, there's, I think if you look through, I mean, I remember a friend of mine a few years ago, I got a check in the mail, random check in the mail. Like, this is weird. I, I knew who it was from. So I call him on the phone. It was a buddy of mine. He had been in my wedding, but, you know, I got married 10 years ago. We hadn't talked in a while. And so we, you know, we're, I was like, what's up? Why did I just get a check? He's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm just working on my relationship with the Lord. And I was praying through if there's anybody I'd wronged or anybody I'd taken advantage of or any loans I hadn't paid back or anything. And he goes, you lent me money years and years ago, and you probably don't even remember it. He goes, but I never paid you back. And he goes, as I was praying through what the Lord was like, how I was going to continue and maintain this relationship with the Lord, your name came to my mind and that amount came to my mind and I knew I had to write you a check. He goes, what you do with the check is up to you. He goes, but that's what I needed to do. And I feel like for some of us, like there are sins that we think we got away with or there's wrongs that we maybe need to make right or there's people that we need to forgive or whatever you're, however the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. It's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. I can just say something and he's working in your life in the areas you know you need to deal with. And I would encourage you to listen to what he is saying. If you know there's somebody you need to minister to, you know there's somebody you need to deal with, some, some sin that you need to confess to the Lord and say, Lord, I've been hiding this for so long. I can't do it anymore. Do that today. I mean, this is, I think if we take anything from this passage, it's just a great reminder that the Lord is going to deal with sin. He keeps his promises in that area. All right, next little story. We're basically going to read the whole next story in one shot. It's only eight verses. So we transition to the next odd story. You remember Goliath from 1 Samuel 17? Who can forget Goliath, right? You remember Goliath? So apparently Goliath had brothers or nephews or cousins or somebody because we're about to read about some giants that come back. 
and they're relatives of Goliath. They're seeking revenge. Verse 15, there was a war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbanab, one of the descendants of who? The giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Basically, David, you're not your younger self, right? You're getting weary, you're getting tired. Let us take it from here, all right? We got this. So they basically say, you stay behind. Verse 18, after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sebekai the Hushutite struck down Saph, who was what? One of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Ahilion, the son of the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath. Yeah, I'm not even going to try. Struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. All right, another, another war. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature. Now listen to this one. Who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So that's how the chapter wraps up. Two stories in this epilogue, and it's basically the return of the giants. And here's the thing. If you read through the Old Testament, the giants have a very I keep referring to them as the giants, but that's how they're referred to. They have a very interesting place in the Old Testament. All right, we see them as early as Genesis 14. We didn't know them as giants then, but if you look at what they were called there, and then you see the references to them later, you're like, okay, that's the first place we see the giants is in Genesis chapter 14. And then when they come into the promised land for the first time, okay, they, they leave Egypt, the Israelites, they go to Mount Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, they get the law, and then God says, let's go to the promised land. So they go basically straight to the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, and they send 12 spies into the land. You remember this? They send 12 spies into the land. I mean, you probably had a song when you were a kid. Two spies came back and said it was good. Ten spies said it was bad. But here's, here's how it reads. And it's, I think it's a very important for what we're doing now. Um, Numbers 13. Keep in mind, this was much before. But it says, and they told, when we came to this land to which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. But Caleb, which was one of the two good spies, quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we all are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it were of great height. And, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. That, that was kind of their first major interaction right? They're going into the promised land. They would say, we're not doing this. And the Lord would say, you know what? Since you don't trust me, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. And that's why you had all the desert wanderings because they came to the land that God had promised. And they said, you can't do this, God. 
You are not big enough to overcome these giants. And God says, for your lack of faith, this whole generation that didn't have faith is going to die off and you're going to wander for 40 years. Then they come back to the promised land. They come into the promised land, but then these giants keep popping up, right? What's the first thing David does after he's anointed king? Fights Goliath. Like there's, there's, it's almost like a test. Are you going to have the faith that I, you're a kid, you're 16 years old, you got a stone. This is Goliath. They have this, they've had a stalemate for 40 days. David, do you trust that I can overcome that giant? That was his first kind of parlay into the, into the kingship. And every so often these giants reappear. And it's, I think it's fitting because, you know, to personalize it a little bit, there will always be things in your life that seem insurmountable. Would you agree? There will always be things in your life that seem insurmountable. And maybe, just maybe, the Lord has put those things there for a reason. So you'll trust him. And here's where most pastors would probably make a reference to slain giants and stuff like that. And I'm not going to do that. Although it's probably a good reference. All right, but here's the reality. Here's what I, here's what I, I want to forget the giants for a second. Because the reality is these four guys that are just mentioned in this passage we just studied, to the Lord, they aren't giants. You ever thought about that? They're not giants to the Lord. The Lord's like, giant? So he's got a foot up. Giant? Come on. Like these aren't giants to the Lord. They're just Philistines. The writer even says it that He points it out. Verse 15, what we just read. There was again a war between the Philistines and Israel. It doesn't say between the giants and Israel. Just calls them Philistines. Verse 18. After this, there was again war with the Philistines. Right now, it goes on to describe who they're fighting. But then verse 19. And there was again war with the Philistines. The writer's not even mentioning the fact, like it doesn't make it was war with the giants. This is a Philistine. Sure, they got some tall people and all this kind of stuff. But here's the deal. They might be giants, but to the Lord, it's just another opportunity for you to trust him. That's, that's all it is. Satan would love for you to view every obstacle in your life as a giant. And that's our tendency. Our human tendency is that every obstacle that comes our way, it's insurmountable. There's no way I'm ever going to get over that. There's no way I'm ever going to find a job. There's no way I'm ever going to pay off this debt. There's no way I'm ever going to lead that person to Christ. There's no way I'm going to be able to go do this or that or that. There's no way they're going to come to faith. And Come on. That, that is human nature, and I struggle with it all the time. But God's like, trust me. No one in a million years thought David was going to kill a giant. Never in a million years. God's like, trust me, right? And the Lord says, like, let's, let's do it. These four giants, they don't even get a story in Scripture, they get two lines each. Philistines, oh, he was tall. Like that's, that's literally, we barely even know their names. Most of you didn't even know who they were 10 minutes ago. You thought Goliath was the only giant in scripture. Well, now you just knew there were four more. They didn't even get, Rizba got more ink than these giants. Because God's like, don't worry about them. Don't, don't worry about the giants in your life because that's exactly how you should view them. Right? These things that seem insurmountable to you are simply footnotes in the story that God is writing about your life. You're going to look back and say, huh, I thought that was a giant. <laughs> that's interesting. Five years later, two years later, one year later, that's nothing. Why was I so worried about that? Why was I so worried about that giant? And all of a sudden, God just blew through it. Does that make sense? 
I, like, I love how, as we close, I love how back in chapter five of Second Samuel, David inquired of the Lord. Here's what he says. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And now you see as David reaches kind of, that was kind of the beginning of his kingship. Now he reaches the end of his life and the Lord is still making good on that promise. That, that's, that's really what the writer is saying. One, giants aren't a big deal. God's got this. Oh, yep, got that giant. Yep, got that giant. Yep, got that giant. Two, God already promised David he was going to do this. He already promised him he wasn't going to have an issue with the Philistines. So it's like, boom, boom, boom. They're done. So where do, where do we go from here? We're going we're gonna to wrap this up, then we're going to take communion. But where do, we, where do we go from here? What can you take away from a very weird passage like this? All right, for starters... I think we're reminded of the consequences of sin. Like we're reminded, I mean, Saul impacts not only himself, not only his family, not only his grandkids who hung, the entire nation of Israel. And no matter how much Satan tries to entice you, like he probably did Saul, into sin, it's not worth it. Ravi Zechariah says, sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay and it'll cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. But even in the midst of sin, God provides a way out. The chapter literally opens by saying there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. That's how the chapter opens. They're in famine. Why are we in famine? There is blood guilt on the house of Saul and it must be paid through sacrificial shedding of the blood of his sons, grandsons. And a loving mother lost her son. Now think about this and think about the imagery. A loving mother lost her son to atone for the sins of someone else. Right? That, that, if you can't, that imagery, that foreshadowing of the creator of the world sending, like, let me ask you this. When I, when I said that those seven men got hanged, when I said that, were you angry a little bit? Was a part of you like, man, that's so unfair. They didn't, Saul did it. What, I mean, that is grotesque. That is awful. That is ridiculous. Like how could David just pick seven men and ha, like hang them and kill them for something Saul did 50 years before? Like when I read it, I was, a little, I was a little angry about it. And I think sometimes you can become numb to the fact that this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. I don't know that I get as mad anymore about frustrated. Oh Lord, why? Like I'm just, like it, it's the same picture. The Lord sent his son, Christ, to earth to pay for the penalty of our sins, literally using the same word. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have heard that before. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now listen to 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Our atonement for sins on Christ was slow. It was bloody. It was nasty. They hung him on a wooden cross. It was violent because sin is all of those things. It's ugly. It's nasty. It's violent. And it's, that's, that's the picture of what the creator of the universe did for you and did for me. And the other thing I want to leave you with is just the, a reminder of the promises of God. Scripture is filled with the promises of God. 
Like you see promises that we can claim when life throws us a curveball or when sin has you in its clutches and God says, let's turn it around. We've got this. Or when you're Rizpah and life seems totally unfair. There are promises in scripture. When life didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to turn out, because it usually, it rarely does. It doesn't mean there's not promises in scripture. What if you're Saul's sons? We don't even hear a word from them, his grandsons. You don't hear a word from those seven guys. What if you're them? There are promises in scripture for you. We're going to take communion here. I'm going to have, ask the guys to pass that out. But communion is an opportunity for followers of Christ just to spend a few minutes remembering the sacrifice that he made, remembering the cross, really to celebrate the promises we have in him. It also gives us an opportunity to really examine our hearts. If you're walking down that road, if you're driving down that road, whether you know the road's out at the end of the road, it's an opportunity for you to turn the car back around and come back the other way. All right, as we take communion, as they pass that out, I want you just to take a few minutes, but we have some verses up here. I just went through and picked 20 verses in scripture, promises of God. So do what you normally do during communion, pray, bow your heads. But if you're so inclined, we're going to put some verses up here that you can just look through as they're passing out the plates.
Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Apparently they'd been taking the Lord's Supper, but having some issues among them where stuff was happening. So Paul basically writes this portion of his letter to them to kind of set the record straight and say, look guys, this is why we take communion. Like this is why we take the Lord's Supper. This is why we we gather together and do this. And the point is not just to drink a little bit of grape juice. The point is to remember that every time you drink this, remembering the blood that was shed on the cross is, is symbolic of that blood. And the you know, to think of those seven men being killed for something they didn't do, but to realize that the creator of the universe came to earth, walked on earth, healed people, loved people, cared for people, tried to draw people into a relationship with himself. And then he, they hung him on a cross and they killed him. And this is just a, just a symbol of that blood. So every time we take this, that's that's what it is. And that's the point that Paul's trying to get across to that church at Corinth. And the same is true here with the bread. This is, this is just a little wafer of unleavened bread. And the, the Jews would make unleavened bread because leaven symbolized sin. So they would make this during Passover to get rid of the leaven, to take it out, kind of symbolic of being sinless, if you will. But the way they cook it, the way they make it, it's got these holes in it. Without the yeast, it's kind of thin. And the way they would flip it and stuff, and what they'd cook it on would have these holes. This is not some marketing scheme. This is literally how it would look. And the goal is that when you take this bread, you're remembering the fact that Christ died on the cross for your sins and his body was broken for you. These piercings in this little wafer that we take, we do in remembrance of him. That is a picture of his body literally being pierced for you, and for me. And I, I pray that we just don't take communion flippantly, that it, that it means something. So Paul looks at the church at Corinth, and here's what he says. He says, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In April... 1988, a guy named Yvonne McGuire died in a skydiving accident. And what made this bizarre is he was actually a very experienced skydiver. He'd already done two jumps that same day, and they were filming. They were doing like an instructional video. They were filming like other jumpers jumping just to kind of show what would happen. Well, I guess the first two times everything went fine. He came back in, he went to put his new chute on, but instead he put on the camera that was in a very similar type of harness as his chute. And just the weight of it felt like his, he'd done it so many times, just, you know, kind of got it on and thought he was fine. And you, you literally, the, the, you can see the video, obviously I don't show much, but you can see the filming going on and you can see the moment where he realized he didn't have a chute. And you can see the camera just kind of going back and forth. And, you know, here, here's the thing. I can't even fathom what was going through his mind. But something so simple as a parachute would have saved his life. And, and my fear for us, my fear for you, 
is that we have been putting our faith in other things, thinking we have a parachute on that's going to give us eternal life. We're trusting in all the wrong things. Maybe we're trusting in riches. Maybe we're trusting in our, our family. Maybe we're trusting in the fact that we were born, you know, into a family that went to church and that kind of stuff. The Lord looks at you and he looks at me. He says, please don't be confused. You need to trust in me for eternal life. I am the only way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And for all of you that are going down that road and you think maybe you're going the right direction, you think you kind of pulled one over on God, look, I don't need to worry about this sign. I encourage you today just to turn it back around, go the other direction, and there's nobody standing there with a sign to tell you've done something wrong. There's a loving father who has his arms open and says, I want a relationship with you. Confess your sins, believe that I died on the cross and you'll be saved. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for really strange passages like 2 Samuel 21. But we thank you for the truth that's found in them. We thank you for the way that you can speak to us through your word, the way that you can convict us, the way that your word just helps us to focus on you. Lord, I thank you for the cross. Thank you for the price that was paid. Lord, I pray that we would understand the magnitude of your sacrifice to atone for our sins. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.